Welcome to the New Masculine Podcast. This is a place where masculine identifying people come together in community to disrupt outdated models of masculinity and together construct new models for our way forward as men. As a special note, while this conversation is between men, this podcast values all beings and seeks to create positive impacts for all. I'm your host, Travis Stock. I am a master life coach, an equus coach, which means I often partner with horses when supporting clients, and I'm a teacher. In my coaching work, I am passionate about the balance of masculine and feminine energies in each of us, regardless of gender. I seek to help others nurture a relationship with both types of energy, which often leads to a greater sense of wholeness. And yet what I found in my work with men is that many of us have been taught messages about what it means to be a man by first teaching us to avoid anything that is associated with the feminine. That avoidance leads to few experiences of intimacy, emotions outside of anger, vulnerability, or even a sense of belonging. Striving to comply with these models of masculinity has many of us feeling isolated, ashamed, unworthy, afraid, angry, and depressed. That's why I started this podcast, to bring men together who are ready for something new, something more whole. My next guest is here to help us continue our exploration of how we help boys grow to be men that embody the values of the new masculine. John Beattie is a mountaineer, global adventurer, author, environmentalist, and keynote speaker who has reached the summit of the tallest mountains of each continent, including Mount Everest. He recently released his third book, The Warrior Challenge, Eight Quests for Boys to Grow Up with Kindness, Courage, and Grit, in which he seeks to teach young men the strengths of compassion, resilience, values, healthy boundaries, and quality friendships. I love when a man can find the balance between a warrior spirit and a soft heart that nurtures relationships both internally and externally. I'm grateful John is joining us on The New Masculine, so let's hear the stories that shaped his relationship to masculinity and the wisdom he has to share. Thanks for joining me, John. Travis, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you. I am so grateful that you reached out after finding out about my podcast. You have quite a story and quite an adventurer spirit that I sometimes envy. I wish I was somebody that had the bravery to go on the kinds of adventures that you have. As a way of just sort of introducing yourself, is there anything else about you that I didn't cover in the intro that you think is important for my listeners to know? Um, along with being a mountaineer, uh, I have that same like get it done at all costs attitude in, in many different outdoor adventure sports and in entrepreneurship. Like I'm a kite surfer uh, and I've kited on every major ocean in the world. And I've taken that same like get it done attitude to my businesses. And that's how I funded all my adventures. So I come from a very classic idea of masculinity. And it'll be fun to like unravel how I've added levels of compassion to that, as you mentioned. So thanks for for including that part. Yeah, I think that's a, something that's most ex I'm most excited about for our conversation is is that so much of who you are and how you present yourself embodies some traditional masculine stereotypes and archetypes. Sure. And you also have weaved in new balances. And I think that that's such an important thing that I like to get across as I'm having these conversations is it's not about completely getting rid of the parts of masculinity that really work, the parts yeah. that are really valuable, the gold in it. But it is about expanding its definitions and expanding what's possible within it so that it's not just limited to those traditional things, but that there is more space for compassion for the feminine for nurturing relationships, both internally and externally. 
I think that's that's beautiful, and uh, I couldn't um, agree with you more that a lot of what is masculine is good, and just because it's masculine does not create toxicity, as you know. There's a common phrase that we're using now. Um, some of it can and does, of course, but not all of it. Um, and as you mentioned, knowing your feminine side, um, and when the appropriate use of that side. Uh, in all all circumstances is present you need to know how to how to be be those things yeah absolutely and i think that's so true what you're sort of pointing to which is it's not that masculinity itself is toxic it's how we wield it how we how we mm -hmm. take it up how we play the role of it how we engage with it that starts to shift things i think that's so true of so many things like I don't know that religion is inherently got some sort of negative quality to it, but the way that we take religion and use put control and fear into it does become toxic for a lot of people. Absolutely. Yeah, very similar. And for, for anybody, I mean, I know you've got your definitions. I think that might be a good place to start. In my opinion, you know, when we're talking about masculine and feminine, I think that at its core, masculine is finality. And like there's a guy named David Data who says that it's death. It's just like, get it done, accomplish that thing. That's why guys say like, oh, you, you slayed your opponent on the sports field. You crushed, you killed. Like, way to, way to hammer that thing done. Yeah, we've got these like destruction concepts, which are, as you said, like the things that I, uh, uh, I show frequently or they come across as, as masculine. Feminine, on the other hand, is what I define as, or I, I encapsulate it with life. So like the flourishing uh, island, like a Hawaiian island could be the feminine. It could be walking down a street and seeing the, the trees, like the leaves of a tree sway, or that's why you see like uh, the compassion and, and growing something out of nothing. That's like what I call a feminine trait. And so we talk about like vulnerability, being open and connection. These are things that I define as feminine. Um, what about, what about you? Like, let's get on the same page with these to start. Yeah, I the way that I play with it is is that the I sort of look at um the masculine's job is to serve to individuate. It helps us achieve, it helps us go after things, it helps us get mm -hmm. clear on what we want and to move forward on it. It individuates us. And that is there's a really healthy sweet spot of individuation that's really empowering and really powerful in this world. It helps us create and yet, if pushed too far, it can get into isolation. It's no longer individuated. It's out there alone by itself. It's a man yes. alone in the woods. Whereas I sort of see the feminine as its job is to connect. And so its job mm. is to bring us into connection, into collaboration, to belong to something. Um, and so I, I think that they play a really in when they're mixed in together, they can bring this beautiful, life force through us where it allows us to sort of achieve and have individuation and be um, an individual that's important in my individuality but also connected to the whole collaborative connected one of some of the language you use in your new book has a lot of that sort of tribal language to it it has that language that's borrowing from indigenous and tribal cultures around belonging to a collective belong and in my language i always say belonging to the herd because i work with horses in my coaching mm. i'm always talking about the language of the herd and what is the herd need but what is also the individual met horse in that herd need at that point so i th i think we're sort of 
pointing to the same direction um, when we in our yeah. definitions of masculine and feminine. And I love how both of us can separate that from gender. That just because you're Correct. a man doesn't mean you don't have feminine energy. Just because a woman is a woman doesn't mean she doesn't have masculine energy. These are separate concepts from from gender themselves. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Like in the world of outdoor adventure sports, which is predominantly uh, a type personalities that are like man's man. Go if you if I was like, hey dude, you're hurting right now. You need to embrace your feminine and tell me what's up. They'd be like, screw you. You know, like it is not it is not a gender. I'm not saying like become a woman. Uh, it's it's this side that we call the feminine. And so I'm so glad that you mentioned it's not male, female. Yeah, we have to sort of differentiate it in our culture because so much of what's been used with men to keep each other in line to be man enough is to sort of threaten that less than feminine role that, oh, right. you, oh you're such a pussy or oh, you're gay or oh, like we, we feminize Don't men as a way a bitch, of, or, yeah, yeah. we feminize men as a way of insulting them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we insult homosexuality as well. Like yeah. I grew up in a culture that said, don't be gay. And that was like the insult. And it's just so destructive to 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 women, to homosexuality, to the whole LGBTQ plus community. It just it needs to stop, period. That's why it's been such a passion project of mine to help men reintegrate the feminine space within themselves, because mm. We've used it as a weapon and we've used it to yes. lower the power and, and worthiness and value of other beings. And we do it with each other, but we do it to all the rest of the genders and all of the rest of people that are different than us. When we use feminine as a weapon that reduces someone's value, I don't really see the feminine as reduced value. I think it's such a powerful thing and such an important aspect of balance in our world. Couldn't agree with that more. I'm 100% on board with you, and you said it beautifully. So there's no reason for me to try and mansplain further. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad we're I'm glad we're already on the topic of mansplaining. <laughs> That's yeah. wonderful. So I'm really curious. Why is this topic of masculinity so important to you? It's one of the topics I know that's important that you enjoy talking about and speaking about. And you're obviously writing books about. Why is it such an important topic for you? Uh, it became so important when I went through the f process of individuation, as you, as you coin it or as you word it, to isolation. And in very specific story language, what that looked like in my life was I climbed Mount Everest. And I was, I mean, climbing that mountain to grab my ice axe and plant it in the summit. Like, this is the ultimate masculine experience I'm going to crush, I'm going to destroy and get to the top of this mountain. Well, on the way up, there was a guy who was on his last breath, uh, and he was left behind by his team. I didn't know who he was, had never seen him before. Um, and as I came up upon him as I was climbing, uh, his body spasmed. And I think he was already gone. He was sort of just in this unconscious state. Um, and I did everything I could to try and rescue him, but was unsuccessful. And fast forward about six months, and I started undergoing the symptoms or having a realization that I had been experiencing the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And it wasn't until I was able to be vulnerable, be compassionate with myself, set healthy boundaries, and learn to connect with people that I was able to get away from this completely isolated state when I was in a fight or flight, permanent 
um, state of existence that healing took place. And now that I'm, I am fully recovered from post-traumatic stress disorder, I don't qualify for the symptoms any longer. I don't have the condition any longer. It's become post-traumatic growth where I'm a stronger, more balanced, more connected, more integrated male because of or person because of this, uh, this experience that I don't believe that others should go through a similar experience. Now, will most people climb Mount Everest? No. But will guys experience something that is traumatic in some form or another? Absolutely. And we're seeing that this year with the number of people who are isolated and alone because of quarantine and COVID. We're seeing that uh, in the number of uh, doctors, firefighters, police officers who have seen traumatic experiences, even a car accident that's that's a gruesome experience a home break-in can uh can cause that sense of uh, lack of safety any of these experiences that we're seeing in the world today can be that traumatic moment that if you have this masculine uh, overly masculine overly isolated mindset that i took to mount everest if you take that to whatever trauma you have in your life it can result in a similar massive struggle and so i thought well rather than curing man boys who are already grown up why don't we just start with a fresh generation of boys and raise them with these principles so that future generations don't have to deal why don't we just cut off these um these generational curses by teaching a, a younger generation to embrace qualities like vulnerability values a sense of equality for others who aren't like you healthy boundaries that connect that bring you together with others rather than pushing them away and isolating them and yourself so that's what that was my intention in writing this book and that's why i'm so passionate about this subject this is why i'm so grateful that we connected because i often describe what i'm trying to do with my work is to create a pivot point and sort of the generational trauma where uh, that we as men mm. have experienced that we have grown up with about what it is to be a man, how to be man enough to constantly be in adversarial relationships with each other. So to create a pivot point where the new generations get to do it differently and don't have to carry the baggage of that generational trauma that most of us are still working through constantly in our lives. Yeah, like in, instead, guys are born with like the masculine, we think of that as strength, as strong. And that becomes a bad thing when it becomes strong to destroy. Why don't we use that strength to lift others up and not be worried if we push them up higher than ourselves because we know and we trust that they'll then grab us and leapfrog us higher than them. And then there's this like trust in the sense that we're using our strength to grow and to build off of one another and to improve society around us and using our natural strengths in order to uh, protect others who are around us. Mm. So would it be fair to say that you, while climbing, you were climbing Mount Everest, you were conquering that, there was sort of that more traditional idea of there's a something I need to conquer to get on top of, to be out there a man alone conquering by myself so that I can feed my sense of ego and my value. Is that fair enough to say? I had started to drop it by the time that I got to uh, Everest, but absolutely true on the mountains that came before Everest. Uh -huh. And I had kind of already had my butt kicked enough where I started to drop this sense of like, I'm going to show off what a stud I am to the entire world and post these photos. Like it was all about showing off for a while and, and like, I'm going to go conquer and be this isolated lone wolf up in the mountains. I did have that, but by Everest, I had started to make the shift a bit. 
Mm. Well, it's so interesting to me that you've like climbing the tallest mountain on earth. And yet the next mountain that you had to climb was sort of that own internal mountain, that mountain that, that of, of masculinity that kept you from sharing what was really going on with you, that caused you to hide your vulnerable and scared emotions after that experience of witnessing uh, the man on the mountain. There, the that was the next mountain you had to climb. Once you had conquered all the rest of the of the mountains on this on yeah. this earth, you had to conquer an internal one. Yeah, often people say, like, "Oh my gosh, you climbed seven summits, you climbed Mount Everest. What's next? What's the next big mountain?" And, uh, and they, their mind is like, "Are you going to go to Mars and climb Mount Olympus there? You know, you're going to go like climb Chimborazo, which is the tallest, like the furthest away from the equator." And to me, I've just switched to a different realm. I'm climbing mountains, but they're not literal mountain peaks they're internal mountains and they're becoming a better human being and um connecting with those around me is is a mountaintop of itself yeah for sure tell me a little bit more about what that experience was like for you confronting and becoming aware of first and then confronting sort of the ptsd symptomology and experiences that we were going through after that yeah sure so we we belittle post-traumatic stress disorder when we trivialize it with something like i stubbed my toe on the side of the bed now i have ptsd whenever i get near my bed or like uh, yeah i slammed my finger in the refrigerator and now i have ptsd around my fridge like that's that's belittling to what is actually going on in this condition for sure so back in the day if there was a a saber-toothed tiger that attacked your your little community, you'd go into fight, flight, freeze, or faint mode. And the way that people lived back then is you had this like, short burst of adrenaline or protective energy that allowed you to look after yourself and look after your people. What post-traumatic stress disorder is, is your brain tells you that that saber-toothed tiger or whatever the proverbial saber-toothed tiger is of today's world is attacking constantly. And you get locked into this fight, flight, freeze, or faint mode. So you're always on edge. And what that looked like for me was very little sleep, waking up. When I did sleep, it would be filled with night terrors, uh, night sweats um, of, of seeing people who had passed away from real life experiences in the past. So I'd see these, I'd be sleeping with dead bodies, essentially, is what my brain was saying. Um, I'd wake up and feel uh, isolated. And when people did try and reach out, I would lash out at them uh, in a, a fight uh, response. Um, and then most of my work and business was built around the flight response where I wasn't allowing people to get close to me. So I'd isolate myself, um, that then I tried to get rid of that with one of three things that I think is a big takeaway for anybody listening, because we all do this, these three things in some way or another, when we experience pain and I would try and numb it out. And my numbing method of choice was alcohol. Um, we try and tough it out. And just like grit through it and like, I got this and don't need help from anybody. We try and nice it out is the third one. And we put it on this face, this front that we think others are going to like, or we don't say the things that we actually need to say to others in fear that it might offend or insult them. And that is actually suppressing who you actually are. And so by, by numbing it out, toughing it out and nicing it out, I was never actually dealing with these these internal messages and if i can peel all these stories back i can peel all the all these symptoms back these messages underneath 
came from this guy passed away and I couldn't save him. And that made me say in my brain or in my heart, I'm not enough. I don't have what it takes. Uh, I'm, I don't have the, the strength or the power as a guy to uh, effectuate change in the world. Um, in this case, saving somebody's life. And I had a message that when people are near me, they die because this wasn't the first time that I've been near death. I've been around 16 people who have passed away um, in mountains and in car accidents. And all these messages are what was underneath all of these symptoms and all of these ways of dealing with the symptoms. And it was through sitting down with a therapist, which is the most courageous thing I ever did in my life, like more courageous than climbing Mount Everest was sitting down and peeling back these layers to find these messages and then changing those messages. And by changing what was underneath it all, that changed the, the symptoms as well as my attempts to cover the symptoms, of course. Well, I love that the antidote to this is you were sort of describing this as moving through that individuation process all the way out into isolation and that the, the real solution started coming when you chose to connect again, when you chose to ask for help, when yeah. you had somebody else be, sit with you and actually really address this with, through therapy in this situation. As a coach, obviously, I super value the sort of therapeutic or coach-like relationship that can actually help mentor and walk you through some of those steps because I think it's important that so many of the traumas, traumas that you're experiencing are created in relationship with other people. And so, therefore, the ways to heal them are in relationship with other people. They can't be done alone. Right. Yep, absolutely. You know, I, I was giving a TEDx talk in South Africa and the speech was triggering because these lights that were on me reminded me of the lights on Everest and the reflectors that were on this guy that I came across. And so I experienced these, um, uh, these symptoms of, of PTSD. I was sweating profusely. I was having a flashback in that moment. I was on Everest while I was giving this speech. Um, and I got through the talk, but afterwards my friend Sandra came up to me and she is the one who pushed me towards the connection side. So if you notice somebody in your life who may be going through something like this, or you know they've been through something traumatic, you can be the person who pushes them towards connection versus letting them continue in their ways. And what she did was she came up and she says, John, if somebody was, they clearly had a broken leg and you see this person walking around day after day, pushing off of this broken leg, what would you tell them? And I said, I tell them to go see a doctor. They're being an idiot and they don't need to like go through this pain that's totally ridiculous because doctors know how to put it back together. And she says, exactly. So take your own advice. There are doctors who know how to put your heart back together, just like there are doctors who know how to put your leg back together and you're being an idiot. So go see one of them. And she threw it in my face in a very like con confrontational masculine energy kind of way. Cause she, and she was smart. That was the right approach for well, her. Cause she knows that's like going to that. work with you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and that was, that was the thing that, so, so you kind of gave me credit for having the courage, but it came at the assistance of, of a caring, loving friend who knew the way that I would work. And she, she threw it in my face in that same way, using my own language against me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think, Thank goodness for friends like that, that can push yeah. us, that can assist us in those moments where we just can't, when we're really locked in, 
And it doesn't also take away from the bravery it takes to actually take the next step. So many people have that moment of confrontation where they hit a rock bottom or they hit a a dark night of the soul and yet they can't take the next step. Because, I mean, in some ways, by asking for help, you've broken all the rules of being a man in this in this culture. Yeah. And so you have failed. So some some people focus on that failure piece. Like, I can't take that step because it would be even one more step into failure. And yet you found the healing. Because it is so obvious when something is physically broken in the body that we go get somebody to help mend that for us. But when it comes right. down to the emotional psyche, the heart, that's where the intangible things that we can't see and feel like a broken bone the same way, um, it becomes harder to ask for those pieces of help because it does feel, it goes counter to what we've been told as men our whole lives. I would like to add in here that in asking for help, many of us say, I don't want to see a therapist. I don't want to tell my secrets to a stranger. Yet sharing with someone close to you, like a romantic partner or a really close friend, sharing with them to the degree that you would really need to for a legitimate trauma can actually separate you from that person. And I don't think that it's the right thing to do to make your romantic partner your therapist. I don't think that it's the right thing to do to make your parents or your best friend the person who is responsible for your healing. Um, And so... If you really value your friendships and your romantic partners, find a therapist. Like if if it's if you're thinking right now, yeah, I probably should or I probably need to. That means you definitely need to. Like mm-hmm. if there's an inkling in your in your heart that says like I should go talk to somebody, then just like suck it up and go sit down and do it because you're going to realize how much is there that you haven't yet admitted to yourself and it protects your friendships. It protects your loves. It absolutely protects your friendships and your loves. I Bringing your trauma into the space with somebody that doesn't necessarily have the tools to know how to navigate that and somebody that is not distant, separate enough from you, distant enough from you, your decisions, your life impacts them. And so they're going to be invested in the decisions you make. So that can bring up fear and re- and they can take on passive amounts of trauma in the hearing of that story. And so I think what you're offering and the encouragement you're giving is so accurate to preserve the connections that are important to you, that are close to you, find someone on the outside that can help you work through that so that then you can continue showing up really well in your current important relationships. I think that's so true. So thank you for that invitation and that offering to men. Something you said earlier that really stuck with me was you're talking about the three different ways that we sort of cope with our feelings. And I think we're accustomed to knowing the numb it out one. And we're started, we've been at least on this podcast talking a lot about the toughing it out part of it. But the nicing it out part was such an interesting mm. way of saying that that I really like, and is such an important languaging for me as I in my own journey with this, because that's the kind of man I am, I will nice it out all the time. Mm. I lose track of, and this has been work I've done for a long time, and so I'm I'm conscious of it, but it's still places where I have to work on my in my own journey, which is to put kindness at the in everything that I do, but not to put niceness in everything that I do. Because I do nice it out. Yes. I do hold back. I do want to be seen as nice in every situation. And I think that you're right, that is a way of 
numbing out in a certain way. That is a way of trying to control the reactions of other people, which is a pretty codependent way of of engaging in relationships. (laughs) I just be nice enough. I can control your reaction outside of me. In, in rock climbing to make an analogy, if, uh, if I go climb a wall and the holds are falling into pieces, it's all crumbly rock. Or if it was like a gelatinous blob, I was trying to go up. It wouldn't work for climbing because there wouldn't be a solid structure upon which I could, I could grip and, and have my relationship, so to speak with the rock. It's the same exact thing with humans. If you aren't able to say, this is where I stand, this is what defines me. And whether you like it or not, whether you want to climb up this rock or not, so to speak, or have this relationship with me, um, this is who I am. And if you're not repelling people in your life, you're too much of a nice person. Kindness is the, what you said is the, the correct approach. You have that strength and be kind and choose that. This is who you stand as. But that's very, very different from niceness, which is the equivalent of boundaryless. It is the equivalent of wearing a mask, a front, and being fake. And if you're doing all those things with people, how can you possibly hope for an authentic, real, loving connection with another person? That's so true. And I'm glad we're talking about this because my hunch is is the men that are listening to this podcast are going to tend to be the ones that either numb it out and, and isolate or they're going to be the ones that that nice it out. They'll probably tough it out mm. too. But I'm going to guess that the kind of people that are attracted to the work that I'm putting out are similar to me and that they nice it out. So, I just I yeah. love what you're putting out there. And it makes sense to me that it is in some ways, even though it has a nice element to it, it is still a manipulation of the situation. It is still a rejection of authenticity and congruence for some sort of control. Yeah. Yeah. And just being able to say, nope, that doesn't work for me. Nope, you don't belong in my life. And not be mad about it. Not have like shade that you're throwing across with anybody. Just here's who I am. And take, it or le- take it or leave it. I know my value. Now, that's that's the healthy place to really be kind to somebody. Yeah, I am right there with you. So I'd love to um, transition us over to sort of talking a little bit about your a little bit more about your book because I'm with you that it's important that we not only focus on men who already have their patterns and that are already it's sort of going through the world right now, but we but putting some focus on the next generation of men and sort of preserving who they really are rather than continuing to ask them to be something that is limited and that is restrictive. These sort of some yeah. of these traditional masculine archetypes, I think is where I feel I'm feeling a lot of passion these days around how we continue to make change in the world. As we've seen in this like latest political um, scenario in the United States. <laughs> debacle. Like, debacle. <laughs> correct. But it is, <laughs> but it is young people that are changing things. It is people of color, yeah. people, diverse people that are changing the way things are moving. And so I think we have to sort of continue to empower those young men to become the kind that we're, you and I are talking about, that you and I are striving to be in this world and that we're encouraging other men to be. So. The Warrior Challenge. Tell me a little bit about why you wrote this book or what what you want people to know about this book as they're considering purchasing it. Absolutely. So this book is written for 10 to 16-year-old boys who are 
at a place where they're starting really going through puberty once they have this new set of uh hormones going through their body and that, which equates to power like, what do you do with that and so this is a rite of passage because back in the day there would be if you want to be a man in our culture you're going to go hunt a lion and that was what makes you a warrior or you're going to put your hand into this glove full of ants and these ants are going to bite your hand and you have to do this 20 times it was from the mawe culture in brazil um, or you're in Vanuatu pushed off of a hundred foot tree with vines tied to your legs. And that's what, if you can look at death in the, if, by falling and not feel fear, then that's what makes you a man. Well, we threw these, these rituals away because they're abuse. But we also threw away this sense of here's what it takes to look after yourself and to protect your tribe. And this book brings that back. This book says, Here's how to look after yourself. That's training phase one in the warrior challenge. Training phase two is here's how you look after other people in today's world, in our culture, in our society, and how you uplift them and use your natural strengths and talents to improve the world around you. And then training phase three is all about choosing your battleground and understanding that others have a right to choose their battlegrounds as well and how to work cohesively with others. Um, and so each of those training phases of mastering yourself, mastering your relationships, and then mastering your purpose, each of those then has emblematic, emblematic stories of some of the most badass dudes I've ever heard of exemplifying values like stepping up, taking on, uh, learning self-awareness, how to see what, go what is going on in your own body and your emotions and how you're interacting with others choosing values, setting boundaries, stopping toxic relationships or not becoming a toxic human being yourself, recognizing when others are different from you uh, and how to appreciate those differences versus trying to smash those differences down in a weak effort to make yourself look bigger and stronger. Um, all of these are motifs and principles throughout the book and that's, what, that's what's taught in it. And I love what you were talking about. You sort of talk, said that you tell some of the stories of the ba most badass dudes you know and conquering things. Yeah. I think that's something that's so powerful within the book because it returns us back to a, a way of passing down wisdom that has been used throughout our human evolution, which is storytelling, which is inspiring through storytelling. We've gotten so into this like school system that teaches knowledge by memorization by taking tests by achievement and yet so much of your story is hearkening back to the way that we as humans pass down knowledge for centuries <laughs> and so I, I love that you use the power of st storytelling throughout the book as a way of grounding what what your the message you have to get across in it thank you travis i mean that's very intentional all religions pass their stories down for with pass their messages down their values down by using stories. And uh, I read this really interesting thing that um, when Aristotle uh, was presented with uh, uh, the written text, he was actually against it, against having his speeches written down because he thought that, oh, then that will mean stories will start falling away. Um, it's sort of this nearsighted perspective, but he knew that values were conveyed by, by storytelling. And that's such a fascinating thing that for thousands of years before written language, it was stories that taught how to live. So I included it intentionally. 
Yeah, I'm glad that's there because I think that speaks to the developmental stage that ki- that the youth are at in that place that they're going to see themselves in a story of somebody that's badass that is uh, that you would or somebody that you seek to be like. Those sort of stories are really powerful at that developmental stage because they're giving archetypes to sort of reach for, giving oh, I I see something outside of myself that I can be like that is a positive rather than a lot of some of the sort of challenging masculine energy that we're seeing in the world currently. And and I saw that all these challenging masculine energy energy styles and I thought, well, there are also thriving masculine energy styles and guys who have really done it right. And why don't I show those two young men as heroes? So, you're absolutely right. I put readers into the shoes of like a a kid who's hunting a lion and you are that kid learning how to step up. You are Danny Wei. It's written in second person. So you are Danny Wei jumping over the Great Wall of China on a skateboard, becoming self-aware. You're barreling down the Baja uh, Mexico desert in an off-road dune buggy, essentially, like learning how to set values. You're escaping from a communist country to set boundaries. You're climbing in Yosemite up up El Capitan's Dawn Wall in order to learn how to find people who will uplift and, and your teammates, your battle crew, as I put it. So you're in these stories uh, as a reader. And you're absolutely right that uh, these become how kids remember. I've had so many parents reach out and say, now when I, have to, when I want to tell my, my son something, all I have to do is say, hey, what would, Ernest, what would Ernest Shackleton do in this situation? Oh, yeah, they remember Ernest Shackleton's story of like escaping from the Antarctic ice and, and taking all those men with him. And then it's just, oh, right, grit and resilience. It's just built into these stories. Yeah, it gives a common language that you then speak to each other and you can shorthand. What would so-and-so do? It gives these archetypes that they can embody for themselves and play with. Okay, well, how, how, would, how do I, embodying that energy, want to step forward in this moment, knowing what I've learned from this book? So, yeah. I, I, I think that's so great. To loop back to what we started this whole conversation with of masculine and feminine energy balances, um, I, don't, I don't define masculine and feminine energy in the book, but I do cover like grit and toughness and resilience, which we would call the masculine. And I do also cover, here's how to have compassion. Here's how to have understanding. Here's how to be vulnerable. And it doesn't need that language for a, a 10-year-old boy of masculine feminine. Um, but it, it shows them all. And I think that that's, that's such a, like, to learn that balance without even putting a label on it is just like when a child hears music, they just dance to it. And they don't need to know the steps. They just need to know that, oh, this is how you do it. And I, that was very intentional in the creation of this as well. Yeah, you don't have to think it through and, and intellectualize it. You get to be yes. in the experience of it. Just embody it, right? Yeah. yeah, for sure. So, something that I found so interesting while I was reading the book is I noticed this reaction within myself around use, continuing to use the warrior archetype to sort of describe masculinity that the book is called mm. The Warrior Quest. There is this sort of intentional energy around warrior, uh, of being a warrior out there with grit, conquering things. There, in my first reaction was there's a bit of adversarial element when leaning so heavily into the warrior. How do you define mm. the warrior archetype for masculinity and why is it so important for you to focus on out of the other available archetypes that we can, as men can embody? 
uh, it was chosen because 10 to 16 year old boys, I think, respond the same way that I did uh, when my friend Sandra said, dude, you're acting like an idiot, mm -hmm. step up and do something about it. So that was that confrontational attitude that I think that that young men of the age group that I wrote for respond to well. And the warrior class in the Maasai tribe, that started when they were 13, 14, 15 years old. And I think there's a real passionate energy in young men that if it's not directed, it becomes pathological. And so that's the age that uh, in my studies of psychology and my studies of archetypes, that's the age when it has to be directed in a healthy way. And you're absolutely right that there are several other archetypes. There's king, there's magician, there's lover, and, and so on. And beyond that, just that one you know book that has those four archetypes. Um, but for this specific age, I wanted to make it the warrior challenge. I mean, that's the title. I'm, I'm challenging you to step up as a better man and embrace these archetypes. And towards the beginning of the book, you're right. It's very in your face. Like, come on, man, what you got? You're going you're gonna to accept this challenge or not? But as the book continues, the language does soften um, into the other uh, archetypes. And it goes through um, magician without labeling it. It goes into lover without naming it. And it ends with king. Like, what's your purpose? What are you here for? And are you going to have a community that you uplift or are you going to be a dictator that's a jerk to the people around you so it it, it covers them but it starts with that warrior challenge because it, it is it's a throwdown it's saying we need a better generation of young men who's going to step up who's with me and i'm fully challenging other readers and it could turn people off but i think for the folks that are like me that will read it it would be like hell yeah i'm all over this bring it on yeah totally i'm so grateful you're explaining it because I think it's, I think that is true that there is an energy in that age group that needs support being channeled, being put into something in a positive way, or else it can get really skewy and it can get really uh, out of balance. And so I think that confrontational energy and challenging is actually something that can be really useful in those moments. I think where my question comes from is we've spent, I've spent so much time on the new masculine with my guest exploring the other archetypes because we hear so mm -hmm. many stories of the warrior or the king. We notice a lot of that storyline in our cultures very rarely used in a healthy way. We see the stories of the, the um, out of balance king or the out of balance warrior. Um, but I think that I think that's where my question comes from is, is we've spent so much time seeking the other ones. It's interesting now to step back into the warrior for me and go, okay, well, where where's the gold in there? Now that we've explored some of the other and started to bring in some more of the other, the magician and the lover that can tend to have more of a feminine element to the of, of yeah. the archetypes. How do we reclaim the gold of the warrior and the king without? it becoming isolated, going too far into the individuation and going into the isolation. So I, I really appreciate you being able to sort of explain that. And it makes a lot more sense to me as you say it. Can you, uh, can I geek out with you right now? Please do. <laughs> okay. So, uh, in the Marvel universe, uh, Captain America could never wield Thor's hammer. And through all these movies, there are like 21 films of him like toying with this hammer and sometimes it would like quiver but he couldn't pick it up but Thor would just go and grab it and the best explanation that I like geeked out searching through all the blogs and YouTube videos about this subject the best explanation was that Captain America was a blood knight meaning he was that warrior that was out of balance 
which isn't even a warrior. He just fought for the sake of fighting. And I think that's what happens when young boys don't have this energy directed. They just, I got this energy. I got to do something with it. And then you got some dick in a bar that's picking fights just because he feels like he needs to fight. Instead, in the final Avengers movie, when there's the huge war with Thanos and everybody's there, Captain America finally wields the hammer. It's this massive moment. And I was in the theater watching and the whole theater erupted and cheered because it was like, will he get it? Will he get it? He got it. And that was the moment that Captain America no longer made it about himself. It wasn't fighting for the sake of fighting. It was about fighting for all of those people who were there with him. Uh, and that is the warrior that I'm training in this, the real life warrior I'm training with this book. I'm so glad you geeked out with that. That like gave me chills just hearing <laughs> your excitement and explain the, the reclaiming of balance within the warrior. The reclaim, and that's what allows the real strength in that moment, which is to pick up Thor's hammer. That's such a beautiful way of looking at it. I, I know there are so many like stories and parables put into these movies, and I had never really fully thought about what is it that makes the shift in that last movie where he gets to pick up the mm. hammer. So thank you for putting that through because that makes a lot more sense and gave yeah, me chills listening to you talk about it. <laughs> and you got a sweater on? Cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if it's like a, a young man decides, you know what, I'm going to fight for the environment or I'm going to fight for this, the rights of this underrepresented group. I'm going to fight for education for people like me who never were able to get education. That's the That's the young man, the warrior that I hope to God gets this book and learns how to fight for what's right in the world and for his community and for his people. Uh, it seems like there's an important element of redefining what strength is and how we use strength. Um, what are we using it for? What are we giving value to and what are we calling strength? Is it still the same kind of strength where we overpower and take from each other? Or is there new definitions of strength that are so important to the way we as evolve, we evolve as men because it does feel like so much of our strength ideas have been about who can ha who can overpower who, um, mm -hmm. and now it's about redefining that so that it does value the community so that it does involve still using your strength to overcome something but not using it and wielding it on each other. It's sort of power with rather than power over. Yeah, I mean, even fifty or sixty years ago the the power was coupled with values i mean if you're if you're one country against another it's this country's values versus that country's values but when that energy like when you're in a state of peace and it goes on for too long suddenly you want to overpower that's like the whole culture wants to overpower the people within the same culture and that's where we've come to and that becomes divisive so um let's let's fix it <laughs> let's that's definitely really... fix it <laughs> <laughs> like that's what we're fighting for together here yeah for sure something i also i wanted to sort of talk about with you because it's such an important aspect of where we're headed as a culture we're having a lot of conversations right now about diversity and about how white people let's just call yep. it out what it is how we as yep. white people utilize pieces of other cultures, how we take, how we um, co colonize a lot of different things. We're having a lot of conversations as a culture. 
And something that I thought was really interesting as I was reading it is how much of your language borrows from indigenous um, tribal languages. So like, what is your tribe? And so we're having these active conversations about where is our language taken from other cultures? How do you sort of play in this space of borrowing the wisdom and the knowledge that you've learned from other cultures? And how do you balance sort of like respecting the culture versus what would be considered taking from them or cultural appropriation, I guess would be the word that we're using a lot in this culture. How do you view it? I've traveled to 67 countries in my life, and I'm a richer person for having been to each and every one of them. And to really simplify this, when I come across a dish that I absolutely love, I learn how to cook it. I'll take a class in that country and I will master that dish. And I still cook those meals for myself now that I'm home. And I don't have any shame about that. I think it's a beautiful thing and it is like a sense of gratitude. And so in the places that I visited that I've learned, these people kind of do it better than we do it in Western world or in the United States. I brought that to this book shamelessly. I'm learning from Sherpa in Nepal and look at the community that they have and look at how they talk with each other and look at their families. I shamelessly take from South American cultures that have a better sense of family and open passion and better communication skills. And I don't find that I'm stealing or taking. I think I'm honoring and saying, hey, those people are doing it great. Let's bring some of that into our world. Um, and so, yeah, is there is there a, a misuse of cultural appropriation or of stealing from cultures and not giving credit? Yeah. But just like an author that gives credit to the person he's quoting, saying this 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 other person made my book better because now I can quote them. That's what I attempted to do. And I have a massive bibliography in this book saying, here's where I took everything from. I credit and quote as much as I can and give credit where it's due and remove myself from the equation. So I think that I think that it's a great thing to learn from others. And I think it's part of humanity. And it's not just white people who have taken from other cultures. That's the nature of human history as India and, and China and South America were, were all um, uh, grew in their histories. They took from the cultures that came from before them. Yeah, I think there's some importance in some of the things you're saying around, first of all, giving credit. So much of when cultural appropriation is playing out is without credit. It's just taking because, yeah. oh, I like that. And there's a violent element to that. There's a right. There's a disempowering way in which that's done. But learning from other cultures and giving credit to it and saying, here's where I got this and here's where here's what it brings up in me. What does it bring up in you? I think that's a really beautiful way to because I do th I do think it is actually important to learn from each other and to not wall off and isolate and say, OK, now that I, as you and I both as two white men, we're not allowed to take on any information from any other culture <laughs> that's around us. That would be unrealistic and would be problematic in a different way. It would be incredibly rude to just put up blinders and say, I'm not going to learn anything from you and whatever you have to say means nothing because my way is the right way or go to hell. Like that, that's worse. Mm -hmm. There's something about the taking energy versus the learning from. There's a shift in that that is important. Mm. And the way you talk about it does feel very much like you've been learning from rather than taking from other cultures. And I think it's sometimes, I think it's just an important conversation to have because it is a, it is sort of like a nuanced conversation to be having that, that where yeah. 
where we're learning versus where we're taking. How do we differentiate the two? How do we show up with respect? How do we honor the places that these this, that this wisdom came from while also sharing it, while also letting it 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 take over? If it's if it's a better way of doing it, why not let it take over? Yeah, um, that that fluidity and giving of respect and. It really, it's each individual checking their own heart, saying, "Am I, am I saying that I came up with this on my own, or am I giving credit where credit's due?" And and from a, like a stand-up comics perspective, am I stealing other people's jokes, or am I like getting influenced by a comic's brilliance and then building on that to move the craft forward? Yeah, I guess that happens in so many different areas, like the music industry. Like, are people stealing pieces of, of songs? Are they inspired by songs? Are they giving credit for yeah. the, the samples they've taken from music? I guess that plays out in a lot of different arenas, too. Yeah, absolutely. So, it's uh, if your heart says, I'm grateful, I don't think you need to worry about cultural appro- uh, appropriation. If your heart says, um, I am proud or overly proud in a negative way, then you should probably shift course because you're, you're taking without uh, acknowledging. Yeah. And I think that there's also some value in actually asking the question, how does this feel when I talk about like asking where that information comes from, talking to the Mm. people that you're learning, checking in to make sure does this feel honoring of you? Does this feel like I'm taking from you? Or does this feel like I'm actually uh, valuing and honoring what you've shared with me and learning from it? Because I think we're having that conversation where there's a lot of time. I know this happens in the gay male world, where much of our culture and affect the way that gay men talk to each other has been appropriated from black women. And so... Mm. There is, I could say there's no malice behind it. I do have love in my heart for black women. And yet, if I constantly making and adopting a way of showing up in the world that isn't, a, isn't authentic to my, to me, there is a way that I need to start questioning, even with the right and even with my good intentions, have I accidentally taken something that wasn't mine to take? Have I adopted something that wasn't mine? And so, Asking those questions, getting feedback from others is an important uh, mm-hmm. is an important thing to do. I think it's not just checking in and going, "Oh, well, my heart's in the right place." Good intentions are good intentions, and those are important. But sort of, I like to encourage men to stretch even further and to check in with what's your in- actual impact, not just your intention. Mm. Got it. I, I really love that. Um, in each chapter, I asked some one who was uh, represented in those challenges or in those chapters. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, and often I got, I got bumped up against and said, hey, like this is, you might want to change this language. And the book is infinitely better as a result of those questions. Do I, do I think that I at some point will offend somebody in the book with something? Yes. Of course. <laughs> um, and I, <laughs> I, did my, I did my best to give credit and represent and ask and check in with myself. And I love that you added that, that asking element is that that is absolutely so important. How, do, how do you approach that out of, out of my own curiosity of the, the, the gay male community taking from black women? Like, have you, have you spoken with 
a black woman about like, hey, what do you think when I talk like this? Like, how, do, how does that play out in that example? Yeah. And I've listened to not just my own conversations, but I've heard this dialogue happen where where sort of like the sassy, the, the call it like gay men will often call each other bitch or girl. Like that comes mm. from, that comes from a culture that's not ours. That comes from something that doesn't belong to us. And I think it's an interesting place to play in because it doesn't come from a harmful, it doesn't come from an intentionally harmful place. But it is important to hear how does that impact you? Is it okay that I use that language? Is it okay that I, that I adopt that because it's not who I came into the world being. That's not how I used to talk as a child. That's a socialized <laughs> yeah. learn thing that I've played with. And it is about... What were, what were your first words? Yeah. Bitch, Bitch, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a, a learned thing. And it is a it is interesting because it's not like I was the one that originally went in and, and started adopting that... Uh, the cultural norm that started to play out in gay male world. And so it's, it's nuanced and it is, you're right. At some point you're going to offend somebody. We live in a very sensitive world right now where everybody is triggered pretty easily and ready to cancel people. So I don't think it's about swinging so far into anxiety and worrying about every single piece of it. And I think there is a, a way to check in and to get feedback and to ask questions about like, Ooh, how did I, like an example for me that I have had to work through in my own personal life. I used to jokingly say that I had an angry black woman trapped inside of me. Like that, that like <laughs> resonated with my soul. And I thought that was a, a form of valuing because it's something I really loved that energy, that sassy woman, that mm -hmm. empowered woman. I thought I was honoring that. And yet, by calling it an angry black woman, I was playing into a stereotype that's quite harmful for black women. Yeah. And so, I, while my intention was good, I got feedback that it wasn't necessarily, like, in its impact, the best way to handle it. And so, it's something I've removed from my language. It's something I longer say because it, did, it doesn't feel right to continue using something that I got feedback on that was like, mm, maybe not. <laughs> maybe don't say that because yeah. it's perpetuating a stereotype that if a, if a woman is empowered, she is angry or she's bitchy or that, um, that black women are angry and that they like in some way they should be looked at that way. And so there are places where even with the best of intentions, you can overstep. And then what do you do with it when you overstep? Do you make amends? Do you remove, like change the behavior? That's how I've chosen to navigate. It's an example from my life that I've had to really learn and to not put my defenses up right immediately and say, no, I didn't mean it that way. My intentions were good. Mm -hmm. I am honoring you is to like lower the ego and actually listen to what I'm being told to listen to hearing that, oh, I might have impacted somebody in a way and that is not my intention. Now, where do I want to go from there? That's sort of an example from my life. And I appreciate that you're willing to have this conversation because I don't read in your book that you are culturally appropriating or doing harm. But I think we as white men get to should be having these conversations where we check in with each other, where check in to make sure mm. what is our relationship to feedback? What is our relationship to borrowing or learning from other cultures? I think it's not been done artfully in the past. And so we get to change that. 
So right right now we're recording and I'm going to open up completely. Is there anything I've put in this book or in this conversation that you would say, hey, John, you might want to rethink how you approach your language here or your uh, the way the way you've come across this. And like that's that's essentially what we just need to learn how to start asking. So I'm doing it live right now. Like what how can I improve based on your experiences and and our differences and in, in how we've uh, grown and who we are? Well, it's look at you conquering another mountain. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> another brave mountain of asking. No, and I, and I think that I felt, feel comfortable having this conversation with you and asking these sort of challenging questions because I can feel from you where you come from. And I don't have a ton of places where I would say that your language needs to evolve or the ways that you present things need to evolve. I think in, as we were talking about the concept of speaking to a developmental age of boys um, and sort of challenging them. Not all boys do receive that challenge in that way. I wouldn't have been one of those boys. Perpetuating the stereotype that in order to be a boy, you have to conquer things and you have to adopt the warrior uh, archetype. For me as a gay boy growing up in this, whether or not it was intentional, I would have read that as I'm not enough again. I'm not, I don't want Mm. to be a warrior. And so I would have not, I would have not been able to see myself in that archetype and the encouragement of that. I might have felt like, oh gosh, um, I'm being challenged again. I'm already challenged enough as it is in this world. And so I think there are places where we can always evolve to be more inclusive, to reach Mm -hmm. a broader swath of boys or masculine identifying children depending where they are in the spectrum but that's a conversation we're really forefront of having as a culture too right now is how do we honor those that are and i'm still deconstructing it in my mind i still speak in very binary languages about boys and girls and yet there are non-binary folk all over the place there are trans folk all over the place that i want to also make sure that my language is inclusive to them as well so those are the places yep. that come to mind and sort of why I ask some of the questions around why the warrior archetype or why the language of tribe is to start to have real conversations about how are we opening up in a way that other people can feel seen and not threatened in and also recognize that we can't control someone's reaction to something. It's it's a it's a very nuanced and and fine line to walk between being respectful and caring and inclusive versus avoiding so that we don't trigger something. Yeah, got it. Got it. That's valuable feedback. And I'll, I'll take that into consideration when I move forward with the, uh, the projects that will be surrounding this book. And for anybody listening, when it comes to like the subtitle, eight quests for boys to grow up with kindness, courage, and grit, um, that was, that was put across by the, the publisher because their intent in creating this was to not have a me too 2.0 movement um that was their that was their goal when they approached me to to have this book written uh or to for me to write this book and so would i love for there to be uh eight quests for humans or for kids to grow up with kindness courage and grit 100 percent uh and i'll I'll find stories of men and women or boys and girls and non-binary folk alike and include those as the emblematic uh stories for getting this book created, it was for the the young man who would grow up with that that warrior energy that needs to be harnessed. That it would speak to him specifically. So it's for a subset of for sure. boys that 
that may, that would maybe wouldn't have been for you when you were young because you already learned the 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 or you already inherently knew the traits that I aim to teach which are vulnerability and emotional honesty and what we defined early as these feminine qualities or these these softer side of of balancing out the overtly masculine that takes and destroys and wrecks and how do you how do you just use those two energies for improvement um so uh, uh thanks for for presenting that to me that's one that i'm going to be mulling over for sure and seeing how i can include more people well i appreciate it i i think i inherently trust that in you i you do speak you do speak about the LGBT community in the book about standing up boys mm-hmm. who, who value that strength can be standing up for LGBT members. And so I inherently feel your uh, care in all of that. And I think it's just so powerful. And I'm so grateful that you modeled this by asking the question for feedback. I think that is such an important thing that is vulnerable edge and feels like it's even a vulnerable edge to be asked that question of like, Oh, I'm here to present all of your stuff in a wonderful, beautiful light. And now you're asking me for feedback. Oh, ooh, can I, <laughs> can I be, it's what we were talking about before. Am I going to nice this out or am I going to be real? Am I going to be authentic? Am yeah. I going to show up in this relationship yes. as two men having a real conversation rather than trying to have a artificial conversation? And, and if you, if you nice that out, I wouldn't grow from it. It would be essentially stealing like an, a moment. And if I didn't, I guess, ask that, then it would have been uh, like not embodying what I'm asking others to embody. And did I feel uncomfortable? Like, oh, shoot, am I really going to ask this question of him right now? What if he like just slams everything? What if it like opens floodgates? <laughs> you know, all that was like ram- rambling through my brain. And I was like, you know what? That's where it's real. That's where it's at. Let's go there. Well, that's just proof of you like living what you talk about in the book. There are so many parts of the book that are helping boys become more self-aware of what comes up for them when they feel vulnerable. Um, helping men in general, like men could read this book and really get a lot out of it. I mean, I'm getting a lot out of, I got a lot out of it when I read it, but it's that place of becoming self-aware, becoming aware of the thoughts. I think you, in the book, you borrowed the, and gave credit for, um, Michael Singer's Untethered Soul, the inner roommate, Mm -hmm. the inner roommate that's in our minds, that's constantly having a dialogue and analyzing and judging and having thoughts all the time. How do we become aware of it, recognize that we are not it, that we are the observer of that? And then how do we have influence over how the thoughts play out in our mind? Is there anything you'd like to share about that sort of inner roommate concept that you brought out in the book? Really, the idea is like, well, well, rewinding just a little bit, if I had crumbled when you gave me that feedback, then that would be understanding my masculine side, right? But also by not asking the question and opening up and presenting that as an opportunity would be denying the balanced side, the feminine side. Um, and so I, I just wanted to like show that asking others for, hey, how am I going wrong? Or, or how can I like improve is a healthy question, but it doesn't mean that you need to crumble by the feedback. And that's that's the balanced energy. And it's something that we all need to learn. And in that moment that I asked to come to this Michael Singer question, if you have this roommate that's always yapping and chattering, I had like 20 self doubts in presenting that. <laughs> like, what if, 
What if he like shuts the interview down? What if like the, the book like gets banned from Amazon because of whatever gets said here? What if this, that, 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 that's the inner roommate that's always chattering inside your mind, telling you that, hey, all this stuff, these irrational fears um, are just, I mean, they're just that, they're irrational fears and being able to say in the moment, that's irrational. I know the right way to act because of my value system. And even if it feels like slightly awkward or I have some anxiety about living this way, that's the right way to live. Being able to recognize your inner roommate allows you to pause, see all of that happening in the moment, and then choose your course of action. And even if it's in a half of a second that all that stuff goes on, recognizing, being self-aware, recognizing that inner roommate's voice and saying, I'm not listening to you. I'm choosing my course of action. That's a, that's a lifelong skill. Yeah. And I, it's so funny because both you and I were both playing that out at the same time. I yeah, had, yeah, yeah. I had <laughs> my own 20 to 30 inner, <laughs> inner thoughts of judgment and, oh gosh, what am I going to do? Am I going to be nice? Am I going to, ah, and it is that mo, it is a lot. It, it does take a lifetime of work to be able to become conscious of that and choose, still be able to choose the direction forward from that. I think mm. that is so true. And I think as men, we aren't really taught that skill very often and we don't teach yeah. boys how to do that. We teach boys to be reactive, impulsive, to follow their anger, to follow their shame, masked as anger. Um, we, we teach them to be a bit more impulsive rather than to sit back and actually observe that and see that. And so I think that that section of the book alone for me is such an important part of what you're sharing um, with this book. There are the challenging parts of it that are like challenge somebody to do something. There are the overcoming obstacles pieces. But I think that sort of self-awareness piece that starting like really playing with the relationship you have with yourself is where the biggest gold is because I, the way I keep seeing the world as I keep stepping forward and the horsework that I do and the client work that I do is, is that so much of the world is a mirror of what we're playing out on the inside world. If mm -hmm. I'm, it becomes the filter from which I see the world. And then I make that my reality because it's filtered yeah. through all of those thoughts. And until I can get a little bit of a hold on it, doesn't mean I control it, doesn't mean I spiritually bypass through what I'm feeling by thinking positive mantras without actually acknowledging what's really there and what's painful. But it does mean having some sort of ability to put around it and hold it and play with it and, and step forward in new ways that uh, serve you rather than detract from you or keep you locked in coping strategies or trauma patterns or the nice boy <laughs> that I can tend to get locked in. That's, that's awesome, man. I was, it, was a, it was like a pleasure to, to go there with you to, and then to be in a, this conversation where we're intentionally breaking it down and like sharing that experience. That was, that was really cool. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it's a completely, th completely powerful and important thing to model that we can talk at a real level and that we can come at it and look at it and and be vulnerable in what came up for us in the process and still mm. stay in the connection still stay yeah. seeing each other and valuing each other 
Because I think mm-hmm. so little of that is happening currently <laughs> in our divided political environment and our health crisis and our racial unrest and everything we're having. We're seeing so much of the adversarial part without getting to see right. this kind of a conversation. Yeah. Uh, and the reason is that the, they're, har- they're harder. It's, it's less uncomfortable to yell at somebody and then yell at you and then for you to entrench yourself and them to entrench their self. But to say, tell me why you believe that, that thing. What do you experience or what is your history? What are, your, what are the feelings that are brought up when I share the way that I believe? And are you open to hearing why I believe the, the way that I do? All these are the questions that are harder. They take more time. And from a world that shifted in the last 20 years from reading books to reading tweets, we don't have the attention span mostly to to go there with someone else on a human level. Yeah, we're so trained at this point for a really high impact short form thing. And human relationships aren't typically like that actually in real life. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Stretch it out, slow it down, be in it, stay present with each other. That's the way through it. So as we're wrapping this all up, I appreciate all of our conversation today. And the way that I like to sort of land the plane with these conversations is to ask you if there's one piece of advice that you could give to men, or maybe boys in this case, um, depending on which avenue you choose, what would that piece of advice be? How do you synthesize your message down into sort of one little nugget? However large the island of knowledge that much larger is the shoreline of the unknown and what i mean by that is there's always more no matter what course you go down you will never be the top number one guru and even if you are there's going to be more for you to grow from or somebody will come later on that's going to do it better bigger bolder whatever or or we'll do it less and smaller and more humble and more gracious. And I've learned this in all mountains that I've climbed, that when my body is physically broken down, there's more strength. When my heart is beat up, there's more compassion and there's healing that's there. And when my spirit feels totally depleted, something comes that fills me up that's totally out of nowhere or a complete surprise. So. I think that I would leave listeners with that concept of the greater the island of knowledge, the larger the shoreline of the unknown. Thank you so much for bringing your unique way of building metaphor, unique way of building story through that. I think that's such a powerful way to leave this interview. And so thank you for bringing it back. If there are parents listening to this podcast, or if there's even teen boys that are listening to this podcast, and they were interested in finding your book, how might they do so? Another great buyer would be a somebody that has an, a nephew. If you've got any boy, young man in your life at all, or if you think that you have a boy inside of you that could learn from some of these lessons oh, and these like, so big true. concepts that we've talked about, like books like The Little Prince or The Alchemist, those are written for kids, but look at how much we get as adults. And I think that this this book speaks to the young man and all of us. So if that's you, or you have a young man in your life of any capacity, then head to Amazon. The book is called The Warrior Challenge, Eight Quests for Boys to Grow Up with Kindness, Courage, and Grit. Um, my website is johnbede.com, J-O-H-N-B-E-E-D-E. 
com, and I'm at John Beatty on all social media in case you want to follow some of my some of my future adventures. Yeah, I, I I just started following you on Instagram, and I'm really starting to getting excited to follow your adventures on in that platform as well to be able to see elements, not just the words written down on paper. So thank you for being here. If anybody wants to get in contact with me, you can go to my website at travisstock.com or you can email me directly at travisstock03 at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram at travers03 and the new masculine is also on Patreon at patreon.com slash the new masculine. Again, that's patreon.com slash the new masculine. If you're interested in supporting the mission of this podcast, feel free to go to Patreon and see how your funds would be used and your contributions would be used to not only continue our our mission, but also to continue giving back in the world to organizations that are doing really good in the world. Thank you so much, John, for being here, for sharing your stories, for allowing that special moment that you and I had together of being able to confront our scared little boys together and step <laughs> forward in a, in a really powerful and generative Same. way. I really, really appreciate it. Same, Travis. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure. <laughs>